Good morning. It is good to see all of you here this morning. It is good to see the house very well filled. Welcome to each one of you, to our home folks, especially to our visitors. We look forward to hearing some singing here in the next hour or so. So really looking forward to that time. Uh, especially enjoyed the singing already. It seems like when the church house is filled, the, uh, the singing sounds really good in here. Shall we pray? Father, we come before you with expectation. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. We could sing all morning and never exhaust uh, praising you and, and giving you glory because you're worthy of it. Father, thank you for your mercies on us as well. And as we come before you in worship, our desire is that our worship would be a sweet smell to you. Our desire is also, Lord, to hear from you and to um, obey what you have for us, to listen to what your word has to say. We just invite you now into our, this time. Lord, we pray the Holy Spirit would be here and would give us insight into the word this morning. Thank you again, Lord, for being here with us in this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this morning's message, I would like to explore the lives of three men. I'm going to try to do it briefly because we have a full morning. These men all made some, some bad decisions. And the title of my message this morning is, is The Deadly Effects of Secret Sin. And in a way, it wasn't really a message I wanted to preach this morning because we have a chorus coming up and, you know, I want to be inspirational and get everybody all excited about that. But it, uh, the Lord laid this on my heart and I'd like to be faithful to what he has for us here. <clears throat> you remember back in the days of the children of Israel leaving Egypt and Moses brought them through a, a miraculous deliverance. He brought them through the Red Sea and he, he brought them almost to the borders of Canaan. Almost, they were almost there. But at some point, Israel murmured one time too many, and God said, okay, that's it. You're not going to go into the promised land. And so they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. That generation died off. But 40 years later, Moses, he was so close. He was such a faithful servant of God, and yet he too was a man who made mistakes. And God said, Moses, I can't let you lead the children into Egypt, or I'm sorry, into the promised land, into Canaan. And so Moses, before he passed away, he gave, delegated the responsibilities of leadership to Joshua. Joshua is a very valiant man, a very valiant warrior. Joshua is one of the 12 spies who was faithful, and God allowed him to, to see the promised land, and he actually had a very active part in the conquering of that land. So you, you know the story. Joshua begins his leadership, and almost immediately, he, he pulls off, which he didn't do it, it was God. But it was reminiscent of Moses. He takes them over the Jordan River at, at the time when it was flooded. The Jordan River opens up, and for those who had not experienced the Red Sea or couldn't remember it, maybe they were too young, 40 years later, God again does a miracle that has to get the attention of his people. And they're, they're, they're like, wow, this is amazing. God is with us. And so Joshua brings them over the Jordan. It says that, uh, as they crossed over, the people of Canaan were struck with fear, just a paralyzed fear. Did you see, did you hear what happened? This mighty host, they just walked through the, this big river. I'm sure many people in Canaan thought, well, this stage of, of the season, you know, the Jordan River was a natural barrier against enemies, but not to this army. And so they cross over, and fear was in the hearts of the kings of the Amorites and the Canaanites. 
Their hearts were melting. Well, Joshua leads the people up to Jericho, and this was the first challenge. Jericho was a mighty city, big walls. The towering walls made this city very formidable. Really, who was going to ever conquer Jericho? But God gave specific instructions. He said, march around the city one time per day for six days. And so they did. They obeyed. They marched around the city one day. They went the second day. They went the third day. And I'm sure by now the people of Jericho are looking over the walls and saying, either these people are totally nuts or else there's something here that's, that's scary. And having seen them cross the Jordan, I'm sure there was maybe some fear attached to what are they doing day after day. Six days they march around the city. On the seventh day, they march around the city, and then they do it again, and then they do it again, and they do it seven times, and I'm sure the inhabitants of the city were very terrified. You also know the story of, of Rahab that also happens in this time. She had brought the spies into her home, and she had dropped the cord, a, a red cord over the, over the wall so she could be rescued, but after the seventh time around the city, the walls collapsed, and I have no idea how God did that. I don't know if he spoke, I don't know if an earthquake happened, I don't know what happened, but it happened. The walls collapsed, and the people flooded in and destroyed everyone in the city. What an easy victory. This whole conquering of Canaan is going to be, it's going to be a cinch. Joshua, I don't know if he was overconfident, or if he simply trusted God, but Joshua knew what the next step was. We go to, we go to city number two. The next city was Ai, it was a much smaller city. Not quite as formidable as Jericho. And so he again sent spies. Let's check out the city like we did last time with Jericho. It doesn't say that Joshua inquired of the Lord. But he sent some spies. They checked it out and they said, you know, it's not, not a big deal. I, don't, I think we can leave you know, a good portion of the army at home this time. Let's send about two or 3,000 men. That ought to do it. Let's see what happens. This city seemed very small and inconsequential. Well, 3,000 men... Joshua went to the high, the high number. They said two or 3,000. He said, let's go with three. He sends 3,000 men to the city, and the men fled when the battle began. They fled. They were terrified. Somehow, fear crippled them, and they fled. And in the process, 36 men lost their lives. <clears throat> now, you've got to think of, who jo think of Joshua's perspective. He's riding a high. God just moved as they crossed the Jordan. God just moved as they went around Jericho, and suddenly... They hit a small city, and everything stops. And as a leader, can you imagine what Joshua was thinking? Well, let's find out what he was thinking here. Let's see if I can pull this up here. There we go. In Joshua chapter 7, if you can't read this too well, you can open your Bibles. Joshua chapter 7, I'd like to read the first 13 uh, verses in this story. It says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside beth Aven, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, <clears throat> Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few." So about 3,000 men went up from there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabaram and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. That is, a, that is an astounding phrase. 
you have a multitude of Israelites moving across the Jordan, conquering Jericho, and they have one skirmish. A couple, 36 men are killed, and it says their hearts failed them. It melted like water. No courage. Now imagine Joshua's feelings. It says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? This is almost reminiscent of Moses. Several times Moses, in his leadership, interceded for Israel. God was ready to pound Israel. He was angry with them. And Moses would plead with God and say, God, for the sake of your great name, you gotta, you got to hold your, hold your promises, and, and God would relent. And you almost hear that tone in Joshua's plea with God. God, what, what are we going to do? We, we fear before enemies, and, and, and you hear that. But listen to God's response. God listens, but then it says, So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. A lot of appreciation there, right? Get up, Joshua. Why are you lying on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. God was telling Joshua, it is not the time to be interceding. You have sin here in your camp. They have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Now notice that the accusation is corporate. He says they. He doesn't point out an individual, but God is holding Israel, the entire camp, responsible for this sin. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore, unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. I put a couple highlights here because God is pointing out something that's happening in the camp. He says, you have an accursed thing among you. God had specifically said to them, when they went into Jericho, you are not to take anything out of Jericho. You are supposed to destroy everything. Get rid of everything. Now, I'm not going to talk about the destruction of Ai, but I want to point something out. God did allow them to take spoil out of Ai in the next story. That's, that's interesting to me. Achan would have been okay. We know this story is about Achan, right? Achan would have been okay getting spoiled in the next battle, but not this one. For some reason, God had devoted this city. I don't know if it's specific wickedness, but nothing was to be kept. Everything was accursed. And by accursed, that means it was devoted. It was devoted to destruction. God had set them apart to be destroyed. They took of that cursed thing, they stole. And he says they lied or they were deceptive. Those were the three things God has against them. Well, you know the story. They had to figure out where is this sin. So they cast lots from tribes to family heads to clans, however all that goes. Finally, they got down to the last man, and that man was Achan. Achan. He had seen 
a fancy garment. It says it was a Babylonish garment. And he had seen 200 shekels of silver and 50 shekels of gold. Now, at least one commentator speculated that 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 could have been a a lifetime's income. I know these were still a a sojourning people, so I'm not sure what they had as far as income. I think they they were living off the Lord at this point. But think of just, there it was, as they're going through. I don't think Achan's a bad man. I think Achan is in there swinging his sword like everyone else, and he's, he's doing the work of the Lord. And then, boom, there it is. Whoa, never seen so much gold in one place. I've never seen so much silver. And there's a choice. For, for a fleeting moment, Achan is presented with a choice. God's command or, well, no one's, no one's looking, you know. I mean, who, who would really know? Because by the time we get into the promised land, I mean, I'm not going to have, we're not going to have anything, and you got to start somewhere. You know, this would really get us going. Rationalizing. But he already knew it was wrong because he had to hide it, right? So we know Achan took that loot, and he went and he hid it in his tent. He dug a hole, and he buried it in his tent. Because nobody can know, because Achan knows this is wrong, and he can't let anybody know about it. But now Achan has a secret he's got to live with. He's got a secret he's got to live with. And he's got to protect that secret. Nobody could confront Achan for his sin because nobody knew. Because had they known, I'm sure there would have been men all around them saying, Achan, don't do it. Get rid of it. That's the accursed thing. But no one knew it because Achan had a secret. Now Achan probably hadn't thought very far because how is he ever going to enjoy this secret of his? Now he has to hide it. This treasure of his that is so important, now he has to hide it. How is he ever going to... He can never wear this garment. They're going to know. He can't be flashing gold and silver around. They're going to ask where it came from. What was the long-term plan? I don't know if he had a long-term plan, but there's several lies I want to point out that Achan believed in this moment. When Achan is presented with a temptation, the first lie is... When he took it, he said, no one knows. No one knows about this. No one sees this. In fact, I'm going to hide it so no one ever sees this. And the last one is, well, who really cares? No one cares if I take this. I mean, I'm I'm one of hundreds of thousands here. What's the big deal? The lie he believed is that no one knows it, no one sees it, and no one really cares. Well, somebody was paying attention to this. Achan had deceived himself. He thought this wasn't that important. But God thought it was important. As a result, there was a lot of catastrophe as a result. Not only did Israel's heart fail them in fear, but there was death. 36 men lost their lives. I don't know if these men were married or not. They could have been. So that means that how many wives lost a husband that day? There may have been children involved. How many children lost a dad that day? But Achan told himself that it doesn't matter. No one's going to find out. In fact, I don't even know that Achan connected the dots when they were defeated at Ai. Who knows if Achan was along that day? I don't know if he was. I'm sure he was maybe one of the ones back at camp. Did he have any idea until Joshua began to pursue who is the guilty one here? The lie we believe is that it doesn't matter and that we can keep secret sin hidden. But this is the truth. The truth about this is God always knows. And we know these things. But why is it when we're tempted with something like that, we can rationalize 
we can rationalize decisions, bad decisions, that take us to a bad place. God always knows. God always sees. He always cares. And he's very aware of what's going on in the hidden parts of our lives. If you would ask Achan after the story ended, Achan, if you would have known the consequences of what you were going to do, would you have done it? Would you do it again, Achan? I'm sure Achan would say, absolutely not. But that's the thing about sin. That's the thing about temptation is the devil always has a way of showing temptation in the best possible light. He always shows us the glamour of it. We never see the backside of that. And, and our enemy is so, he's so evil. He, he paints a beautiful picture. He makes it look so good. And then when we fall, he makes it look like getting out of this is impossible. He makes it look like it would be way too expensive or it would be way too, um, what's the word I want to I say here? It'd be way too much risk in coming clean. I'm not sure if God would have had mercy on Achan or not had he repented. Had he come forward before the lot had to be cast? It doesn't say. But this thing was not pleasing to God, and this thing was also having a major effect on God's people. Now, we often think of God's people, the children of Israel, it is a type of the church. It's a representation of the church. And I had to think as I read this story, what effects does hidden sin have on the body of Christ? Does it matter? So many times when we rationalize things in our lives, we tend to think it just affects me. You know, I'm the only, I'm the only one that this touches. And I, maybe I'm even ashamed of this thing in my life, but it just affects me. And so you know, I'm going to deal with it in my own way and in my own time. Achan did what most of us are tempted to do when we have a secret like this. We hide. But these secrets become deadly disease in our life. They start to work like a cancer. They start to affect our spiritual life. And I thought of, in a sense, in a spiritual sense, that day that the, the children of Israel went against Ai, and then they, they, they fell back in fear and fled. You know, there was, a, there was a gap in their defense. 36 men died. I don't know if they, if they got shot in the back or what. But there was no protection there for at least some of these people. And when I think about the effects of, of secret sin and hidden sin in our lives, what does that do to our, our defense in the church? What does that do in the body of Christ when there's, when there's gaps, when, when we should be fighting the battle and yet we're living in defeat? Aren't we leaving like a gap in the defense? What about, a, what about the people around Achan that needed him to be there and to be strong? And Achan was, he was hiding. What about us when we're hiding in sin? And we might have a brother or sister close to us. They need us. They need encouragement. They need someone walking with them. But we're not available because we're hiding in sin. And that leaves, a, that leaves a breach in the wall. Something for us to think about. For him, it was a secret possession. What about us? Is there something we have? Is there, a, is there something in our lives, a secret possession maybe, that we don't want anybody to know about? One of the tests that we can, we can have for our lives, whether it's a possession or whether it's any kind of a, a thing like that, if we're not sure about it, let's say it, there's something you have that you're like, you know what, I don't really want anybody to know I have this. I don't really want anyone to know that, you know, this is what I'm up to. If you're not sure, are you willing to tell someone about it? Tell a friend? Tell, tell your minister? Tell a pastor? Tell, tell somebody? And if we're saying, no way, I would never tell anybody about this part of my life. That's a test that maybe tells you something about what's going on in your heart. 
Second man I want to look at briefly. Example number two is Judas, a man we all know about, Judas. Judas had a secret as well. His secret was a little bit different. It wasn't necessarily a secret possession like, like Achan had. In Matthew 10, verse 4, it says how Jesus went about choosing his disciples. Most of us, when you, when you hear the name Judas, we say that the name Judas Iscariot, we all think of traitor, bad man. Judas was a bad man. And what he did was horrible. But Judas was not perceived as a bad man. And when it describes him as being the one who betrayed Jesus, well, the Gospels were written after the fact. So when it talks about Judas who betrayed Jesus, they're just telling us which Judas it is so we know. But these guys didn't know it. I think Judas was a good man. I think he was a very respected man. He was a very gifted man. Jesus calls him to be one of his, the close ones to him, one of the twelve. And so when we hear the name Judas, our minds are tainted about him. But those around him didn't think of him in that way. Good man. I think Judas genuinely loved Jesus. I think Judas wanted to follow Jesus, and he did, faithfully, for a number of years. He was one of the 12 who was sent out to heal the sick. Remember that? God, uh, Jesus sent them out two by two. I think G, uh, Judas was part of that healing ministry, cleansing lepers, raising the dead, casting out devils. Judas was there during all that time. We don't picture him that way, but that's who he was. I think he was a good man, a man who, who loved Jesus. But there was a fault in his life. There was a failing in his life. He was in charge of the bag. He was the treasurer. He must have been good with money because they all looked to him to, to manage the bag. And the fact that during all his ministry, no one questioned him about it, we know that because of how things happened at the, at the Last Supper. I don't think the disciples ever questioned his integrity with the money bag. He was known to be a good man. Because had he had the reputation of a traitor, you wouldn't give the money bag to a thief or a traitor, right? Well, John 12, verses 1 to 6, describes him here. It says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he, used, and he used to take what was put in it. Now again, this was written after the fact. But later on, probably the disciples were stunned when they found out what Judas really had been doing. But here he has a fake concern for the poor. You know, if only we would have sold this, we could have fed the poor, we could have given it to the poor. But in his own mind, he was probably maneuvering, well, how could I skim a little bit of this money here? If, if, we, would, if we would have sold this, I could have maybe taken a little bit of a cut. Now, I don't know how, how Judas first started taking money out of the bag. But based on the fact that, that Jesus had called him to be a disciple and that I believe he was probably a good man, I'm sure it began with some rationalization. You know, that first time where... Maybe Judas, you know, back home, there was some bills that had to be paid, and Judas just didn't have the money at the time. And maybe he thought, you know, it's just, boy, if I could have a loan for two weeks, if I could just have a bit of a loan, you know, we could get this, just get caught up. And, and maybe he took a little bit of money out of the bag, and, you know, I'll pay it back. And, you know, got the bills paid, and, well, maybe he paid it back the first time, and then it came up again, and, 
oh, he's got some other financial obligations, and well, it's just, oh, here's some cash, and well, maybe that time he didn't pay it back, and, and all of a sudden he starts to build this habit over time, and he starts skimming money off the top. He's a thief. The Bible calls him a thief. This was a really, really bad habit, but it was a secret habit because no one else knew what was going on. Judas was a thief. In fact, this habit grew so much to the point that in his, in his greed, Judas betrayed the very man that I think he loved and thought he could make some money off of him. Obviously, things didn't go the way Judas thought, and he ended up committing suicide. A secret habit, a thief. A secret habit is something that you do repeatedly that you don't want anyone else to know about. That's a secret habit. Some of us have habits that are known about. This was a secret one. He didn't want anyone to know, and he kept feeding that habit. He got very good at covering his habit, and we know that he covered it well all the way till the last days of Jesus at the, uh, at the Lord's Supper. Remember when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, the disciples were dumbfounded. Who in the world would betray you? None of them thought, oh yeah, that'll be Judas. We know how Judas is. No, they, were full, they had no idea. They were all asking him, who is it? Who is it? He managed to hold his secret all the way to the end. But you know, that secret took him so far that when, he was, when his plan fell apart, when the betrayal fell apart and he realized he was guilty of the Lord's arrest and ultimately his, his death, he could not handle the guilt. He could not handle the guilt. He could not even envision forgiveness and restoration. He despaired. That's how far that habit took him. It took him to a place where he no longer could imagine Jesus being able to accept him and love him anymore. That's sad. That's sad. What if he would have repented way at the beginning and said, I can't be doing this? What if he'd have called the disciples together and said, guys, I got, I got something to tell you. You guys have trusted me with the money bag for all this time, but guys, I'm, I'm a thief. I'm sorry. I've been stealing. I've been, I've been skimming funds. What if he'd have done that? Could the story have been different? Eventually, he came to a place where he despaired and saw no hope in his life. Friends, it's like a cancer when we have a secret like this, a secret sin. We're hiding it from other people. If Judas had ever dreamed of the deadly consequences that were going to come from this secret habit of his, would he, kept, would he have kept on stealing? We probably all know the answer to that. The third man, David. We all know the story of David. David and Bathsheba, what a terrible fall. A good man, a man after God's own heart. He takes a, he takes a bad fall. He allowed temptation to overcome him. He fixated himself on that temptation, and it, it got him. It got him, and he made provisions to act out on his sin. The problem was is the sin just kept piling up for David. You know that story. David fell hard, and he kept that secret for probably well over a year, and that secret led him to commit murder, and he's holding on to this, and he becomes a very hardened man. Psalm 51 talks about his journey back to God and his repentance, but I think in that period of time, for a year or whatever it was, after he put Bathsheba's husband to death, there is a hardness that happens in David's heart. To the point that when Nathan the prophet comes to confront him about an injustice in the land, David drops the hammer of justice. He, there's no mercy in David. 
And that is typical. That is typical of us when we are, when we're in sin. We become very critical. We become very judgmental. And David found himself there. And Nathan pointed the finger in his face and says, you are the man. David had a choice in this moment. Do I admit it? Do I own up? Or shall I just have this prophet put to death? Why not? Of these three men, David was the one whose heart was broken. He had a broken heart. He confessed that sin. That relationship that David had, it was a wrong relationship. He had no business. First of all, David had no business checking out his neighbor's wife. He had no business being there. And he gave in to that temptation, and then he was living in a relationship that God knew was wrong. Because see, God always knows. We think we can get away with things. We think, well, it only affects me. You go read the rest of David's story, it is tragic. David, of course, finds repentance. David is restored. He should have probably been put to death. He wasn't. God was very merciful. And David, in Psalm 51, he talks about that, how God's mercy He's, he's crying out for God's mercy. And God is merciful, but friends, the consequences were so, so devastating. David's family was a mess. It really was a mess. His children suffered so much. Because you see, David also had a secret that he had to, he had to keep until he was finally confronted. Let me ask you the question about David. If David had realized the devastating consequences of his sin, would he have ever called Bathsheba to come visit him. There's no way. There's no way. All three of these men fell into destructive secret sin, and David is the only one that recovered. Now, of course, David, there were, there were consequences. David's family suffered as a result. There was so much hurt in his children. But God did restore him. God is merciful, and he does give us a chance if we're willing to be honest about where we've been at. Both Achan and Judas, and there's other stories in the scripture we could probably look at, but those two men, they held on to their secret too long, and it finally got him. It destroyed them. Achan, his family, his possessions, everything he had, everything he was part of was destroyed and buried under a pile of stones. Judas killed himself because he could see no hope. He could see no way out. I believe if we recognize and we know we have something hidden in our lives, if there's a corner in your heart this morning or in my heart, if there's something that I know I can't, I'm just not willing to own up to, that's a disease. It's cancer. And it eats and it eats and it eats. And we might think, well, it's just, it's just me. You know, I don't like where I'm at spiritually, but it's, I'm the only one. But think about, think about the defense. Think about the protection of those around you. How many fallen warriors are there because of sin, sin like this, because of secret sin. Because those who should be courageous and standing for right, for goodness, for truth, they can't because they're burdened down with their own personal sin. What choices do we have here, brothers and sisters? I think we have several choices. The first choice we have is to be honest. We can choose to be honest before God. God withheld from his people at, Jerry, or at Ai, God withheld from them. He says, I will not be with you because you have an accursed thing among you. I cannot be with you. Is that true of the church today as well? Would God love to be able to be moving 
with his people, but sometimes he can't because there's sin. There's such a different tone when you read Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, Joshua chapter 8, verse 1. And I'm not going to read it, but look at it sometime. Joshua 7 is that whole story of Achan, and it ends with him being destroyed, and they deal with the accursed thing. But you know what, you know what Joshua 8 begins with? God telling Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We're going to do this. And then God gives a very detailed plan of how to conquer AI. It's, it's, it's complicated. It has ambushes, and it's an elaborate plan, and it worked because God was in it. Because God was in it. Because no matter what, even if you're, you're God's people like Israel was, it was still up to them to obey God. And the moment there was sin in their camp, that judgment fell on them until again they were cleansed. And then God once again says, here's the plan. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm, I'm for you. And if you're feeling a bit hopeless this morning, if there's sin in your own life that is, it's too hard to, to come out with, God wants to give you hope. He doesn't want to destroy you. He doesn't want to destroy any of us. We have to choose to be honest. And second, we have to choose to repent. Psalm 51, it's, the best, it's one of the best chapters in the Bible on repentance. It's, it's David's journey back to God. Think about those two choices. Can I be honest? And will I repent? That's what David did. When he was confronted, he said, yeah, you're right. Honesty says, yes, that's right. And repentance says, I'm sorry, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? And David was, was brought back to God. Failure to repent puts us in grave danger. I want to I uh, bring this to a close with this passage here. In, uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, 7 to 13, as I was reading this the other day, uh, it, it struck me the similarities between Israel's journey and what happens to us in a spiritual sense. Hebrews 3, 7 to 13 says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter enter my rest. And then he gives a warning. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The scripture makes it clear that Israel was held out of the promised land because of unbelief. Here he mentions the unbelief, but he ends by saying, beware, Uh, we're supposed to exhort one another, be challenging one another, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That's that cancer. As as we fail to deal with sin, it, it continues to grow and to grow, and eventually we become deceived. We can become like a Judas where we say, there's no point. I've sinned beyond help. I have sinned beyond help. That is a lie. That is a lie. Here's a few more lies as we close. Here's lies the devil tells us about secret sin. He tells us no one's going to find out. No one's going to find out. It doesn't affect anyone else. This is my secret. And here's where he really gets us. He makes us believe that the way out is also impossible. He is such a foe of ours, brothers and sisters. He makes it look so good going in, but he makes it look impossible to get out. The price of confessing my sin seems way too high. Or he tells us, and sometimes I, here I say that it's the lies the devil tells us. Well, we tell these lies to ourselves. We repeat the lies in our own mind. We may say, well, I can't. 
I can't find freedom. I'm going to always have this shame. It's always going to be part of my story. I can't be free from this. That's a lie. That's a lie. That denies what Jesus came to do. That is to bring us freedom and to bring healing and to bring beauty out of ashes. It's exactly what he wants to do in our lives. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's just as true today as it ever has been. If we are willing to come before him, he will cleanse us. But are we willing to be honest? And are we willing to repent? Shall we bow our heads and pray? Father, I believe you give us stories in Scripture as examples and as warnings to us. And Lord, it's tragic how some of these stories end in hopelessness, despair, and death and destruction. Lord, I believe this morning that you have given us a way. You've given us the way to live. You've given us the way to freedom. Freedom from fear, freedom from sin, from bondage. And Lord, you are into the business of restoration. Lord, I, just, I pray this morning that we would learn from these examples. I don't know what all our stories are here this morning in this place, but Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has been telling themselves and repeating the lies of the devil rationalizing sin, or even giving in to those lies of despair and shame and saying, there's no way out. Lord, I just, I just pray against the devil this morning in the name of Jesus. He is a defeated foe. So Lord, we stand against him. And I pray, Lord, for strength and for the courage to overcome. Lord, we, just, we need you. And Lord, we recognize that our power to overcome only comes from you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. In Jesus' worthy name we pray, amen.